Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Gap. And uh, hey, Richard, you know how like you guys have bears and stuff up there in British Columbia? Why, yes, yes, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, okay. So I guess I'm talking to the listeners. You know how Richard has bears? <laughs> well, I'm not saying Carl has bears, but my neighborhood. Black oh. bears have been spotted in southeastern Connecticut. Wow. Which is odd because... Yeah. N- they have been spotted in the uh, northwest corner of hmm. Connecticut, but not in the southeast corner. But black bears urbanize extremely well, and yeah. they are the populations are growing everywhere. You know, I think I may have talked about this with you offline, but here in our part of the world, we're at saturation level for black bears. There are so many that yeah. they are getting to more and more conflict because there's so they're so moving much to Miami. Around. Well, yeah, except just don't get any high-rises, apparently. Oh, no. Uh, Too soon? Yeah, maybe. Pretty awful. But at the same time, you know, yeah, there's a lot of black bears around. And so I think they're being successful everywhere. So don't be too surprised. Yeah, well, I I found this. um, I don't want to spend too much time on this. But you know the app Nextdoor? Mm -hmm. Nextdoor Nextdoor.com. It's kind of like a bulletin board for local people in your neighborhood, which is really cool because that's something that you miss on a, a platform like Facebook. You know, people say, hey, come on over. And they're like in, you know, some thousands of miles away from you. And it just yeah. doesn't work. So and anyway, you come over, it's thousands of them. and You don't want that either. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. And uh, so somebody posted pictures of or, or somebody posted, hey, saw a black bear in my yard. And this is in, you know, my area. Right. And this guy jumps on this lady and says, you know, there's fake news everywhere, especially the media is terrible at lies and propaganda. And everybody knows there are no black bears in southeastern Connecticut. They're all in northwestern Connecticut. Like he like he berated her. And then (laughs) she posted a picture here. I'm holding, you know, I'm standing and whatever. I'm holding up my phone with a map for reference. Yeah. You know, here, here he am. is. There's the bear. Shut up. Get go over. away. Get over. <laughs> Just amazing what people will argue over on the yeah. internet. But anyway. Stunning. Well, without uh, taking up any more chit chat time, let's get rolling with the little thing we call better know a framework. Awesome. <laughs> All right, man, what do you got? I am introducing to the world today a new GitHub repo from yours truly. And uh, since this is show 1748, you can go to 1748.pwop.me or you can just go to my GitHub repo, you know, slash Carl Franklin. And the the repo is called Low Code API. Nice. So I've been sort of developing this you know, um, set of classes and interfaces so that I can build out the API layer of an application, a web application with the smallest amount of boilerplate code that I have to write. Right. So that means I'm using generics. That means I'm using, uh, interfaces starts with a repository interface. I repository which describes uh, methods for basic CRUD stuff, including a filtered get, which you can use link for. So you can use, you know, where clauses and order by and all that stuff when you're accessing something from it. And so then I created uh, implementation, an implementation of iRepository for Entity Framework. And so this uses the iRepository, but it passes in a, T entity, you know, for which entity you want to access and Mm -hmm. T data context for your, you know, DB context. And it does all of the CRUD stuff behind the scenes using that data context and it's reusable. So I can just, you know, new up an EF repository of, you know, customer with customer DB context or customer context, right? And I can new them up for any entity that I want. So at the API controller level, I'm, uh, and I'm sorry if this is technical, but it's really cool. At the API controller level, I made a base class also of T entity and T uh, data context. So it's an 
entity framework API controller base class. And that means that when you go to create a controller from it, you're just describing the types and in the constructor, calling the base constructor, passing in the repository that you're, you've loaded up through injection. So there's really no code to it. Now you can also add your own endpoints if you want to, of course. But uh, then on the client side, I created an API repository class, which is also using a T entity, but not the data context, of course, because this is the client. And it has methods for using HTTP context to make the calls out to the API and returning the results, all, you know, implementing the repository pattern. So, you know, get, get all. Um, but it also does, and the API controller does, uh, it adds get by value, mm-hmm. where you pass a property name and a value, both strings, and search by value, which returns a list of those entities right. where the property matches. So it's nice, you know, it's not just like simple CRUD stuff. I mean, you have insert, update, and delete too, but you have uh, a get all and you have a way to get by a particular criteria that is completely generic. And then implementing a manager on the client side is as easy as, you know, um, creating in the, in your, the equivalent of your startup in the client, uh, you know, adding a service of that manager of that type. And then you can just go to town. Cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So I, you know, I'd like people to bang on it and tell me I'm not, I'm not crazy, and <laughs> hopefully that this is separate uh, question, really. You know, yeah, that could be beside the point. Uh, but uh, I'd like people to go bang on it. It's awesome, low man. code API. Love That's it. what I got. Who's cool. talking to us today, Richard? Grab the Common Comic Show fourteen fourteen. That's back in February of twenty seventeen when we were at Way NBC back. in London. We yeah. talked to Jess Engstrom about virtual augmented mixed reality. Yeah. It's disturbing that that was more than four years ago, but it was. And we've got a bunch of good comments on that show, actually. But this one's from Lost Menos, who says, I want to give my vote for Google Cardboard. Remember that? It's just like the, you take your oh, phone yeah. and you fold the cardboard around it so that you get that, uh, uh, a way to super low cost, like, uh, uh, yep. art, uh virtual reality. Yeah. Uh, not because it is so fantastic, because it is cheap. It's very cheap. You have cheap. to have a fat phone. It has to be a certain size. And uh, you only have to invest a couple of cups of coffee of coffee, and you're off. <laughs> Here's my real-world example. I was on a longer holiday, and I took a 360 picture. So I had mm. one of the 360 cameras or you know one of the stitchers. If I had known the result, I would have taken more, because when I came home and viewed my 360 pictures with my family at Cathedral Grove in New Zealand, it's a great place, awesome I instantly got the palpable feeling of not feeling the sun and the smell. The feeling quickly disappeared, never to return, but made a great impression upon me. And another example was this simple horror game in cardboard called Chair in a Room. It hasn't got great graphics. It's a little stuttery of movement interaction, but I, and I'm normally not easily scared, but I had to take that viewer <laughs> off twice to make sure there was no little girl in my living room. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know what? The virtual reality stuff, man, it's powerful. And the only, uh, the one of the times that uh, I used up all of the power in my HoloLens was playing that stupid game where you, where the aliens come out of your walls. Yeah. Oh, Robo visual, Raid. Yeah, Robo Raid. The visual effect is killer. And I, and played that till the battery said. And my head was hot. <laughs> uh, we used to have a teenage boy live next door, and every time he came over, I'm like, "Want to play Robo Raid?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." <laughs> and then you know, it's funny watching people play Robo Raid oh, yeah. when when you're just observing them. They're like looking around; they're all furtive, you know, like yeah. snapping in the air, and like <laughs> it's hilarious. So, Lost Manos, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Go By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Go By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on the Facebooks, because we publish every show there. And if you comment there and agree on the show, I'll send you a copy of Music to Go By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a new tweet of at Rich Campbell, comma, Carl Franklin, close brackets. Is that a low-code tweet there you just did there? Is that yeah, what that I was? just had to throw the generics in there. Okay. So. All right, now let's get down to business. Catherine Diaz is here, and uh, she's a software engineer on Microsoft's Mixed Reality Toolkit, 
or MRTK team. She has worked on components such as tap to place, leap motion support. Wow. And other mixed reality input related components. Well, Catherine, it's an honor to have you on the show. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to be here. So give us a little more info about uh, the the toolkit. Um, at what level does it sit? Obviously, it has to sit above the hardware level, but I, I guess you've abstracted away all of the cool things that are similar in all of these platforms and allowed us to write code against it? Yes. So MRTK is going to be a framework that is specifically for um, interaction, um, it's like spatial mapping and kind of abstracts all of the VR and AR concepts that are common. And this toolkit is used through Unity, but we also do have um, MRTK Unreal, but my work is primarily on uh, MRTK for Unity. And so the way it works is that you import a, these collections of Unity components into Unity. You have your mixed reality toolkit uh, game object along with like configuration profiles. And then within these configuration profiles, you have settings that are tailored to the platform. So for example, within VR, you are able to teleport from a space to space. Okay. But then in AR, that's not really supported because you're walking around within um, a complete, like infinite space. Right. So you re- have reality, yeah. actually. Although, yes. <laughs> can I just put in a, a request for, if you can get teleport to work in actual reality, I'd sign up. <laughs> oh yeah i think it's definitely possible <laughs> I, I but i appreciate that and i was my really my first question was how much is common between vr and ar because you know one you're in reality and adding to it and one you're creating a completely new one like it seems like a pretty distinct separation oh yes definitely so within virtual reality i think the biggest factor is the amount of control you have over the environment mm-hmm. so within vr You're able to control every factor, where items are placed, what is being displayed to the user, and how things are, um, how you interact with things. So a primary source of input for VR is going to be the controllers, but there is also like hand support for it with the Oculus Quest. But you have those controllers and then you're able to uh, like um, really, they have like a distinct form of input. So you have controller buttons, triggers, and that's like stable. But then with AR, you basically have to understand the environment and then mm-hmm. and then program on top of it and then place right. things relative to these uh, different environment, which is not the same across any and no space is the same. Yeah, no right. kidding. And then the controllers are different, too, because people tend not to have physical controllers. With, with yes. AR. Yeah, with AR, especially so with the uh, HoloLens 2, you have uh, articulated hand tracking. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to give you the data for the 26 different joints that are tracked. And so that then produces very unique interactions where you don't have the finite set of buttons. You can instead use gestures. You can, um, it enables near interaction, which involves like direct, directly touching holograms. Right instead of interacting through a the usual like far interaction ray cast that traditional like VR controllers have. So the HoloLens one, in order to interact with holograms, you had to sort of look at it and then, you know, do the tap. And uh, I guess in HoloLens, I don't have a HoloLens two, but you're saying in HoloLens two, because you have hand support, you can just reach out and touch um, those, those holograms and interact with them. I'm looking at the video on the, uh, MRTK getting started and it's just astounding. Um, the, the AR stuff, the holograms, like the menus are just sort of floating and you're just using your fingers to push the buttons and move them around. It's, that's pretty amazing. So the Richard, you were going to say something about hollow lens too. Yeah. I was going to ask about the eye tracking. Okay. Just because I, I've always struggled with the gorilla arm effect of, playing with AR, like reaching out, you're touching things that aren't actually there. It's mm-hmm. hard to hold your arms up all the time. I was thinking that eye tracking would be really cool. Oh, yeah. I would definitely say that um, like 
prolonged interaction through uh, near interaction and directly with your hands does lead to fatigue. And so then that's where eye tracking comes in. And we have something in MRTK called dwell, which is a means of interaction through how long you are looking at a specific object. So right now, the way that works is you could be looking at a button from a distance. And then as soon as that input cursor enters that button, we trigger a timer. And then that timer is looking for how long you are looking at that button. And after a certain duration, you are then a, a select act, a select action is then triggered. So the same way that hovering a mouse over a button eventually pops a tool. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it occurs to me that a lot of the interface stuff related to HoloLens is time based. It's a mo- the movement of a hand, not just the the binary you've clicked a button or not. It's the hand is in this posture, and then it transitioned to this other posture over time. And that sends a, a, an instruction or something. Oh, yeah, definitely. We're mm-hmm. looking at... That's hard. Yeah, it, it is really hard. There's a lot of a lot of work behind that. But like specifically with like the button interactions, we're looking at velocity of the, mm-hmm. uh, of the hand joints. Because you mentioned prior that there is a lack of haptic feedback within AR. Right. Because we're just in the air interacting with uh, objects. So in order to kind of um, offset that lack of haptic feedback... We integrate visual feedback and audio feedback are really big with the uh, interaction in MRTK. So, for example, we have our near interaction buttons. As you push that button, there you're going to get the visual feedback of the button actually compressing. Mm-hmm. And then once that action is registered, you, of course, hear that sound. And a, then a there some button. Yes. Back. Yes, a, a click. Yeah, whatever that selection uh, that selection sound is. And then you also have the other visual feedback of like a select action a select action was triggered. You have different shader effects on these buttons, as well as hover effects. Because those uh, hover effects are what um, are what's going to determine where the um, the hand tracking is being read. So as you get closer to that button, it's going to glow to give you that visual feedback, right. which it's ensures user confidence. Yes, it's reacting to you. I, I wonder if you can overcome that ha- lack of haptic by filling in the other senses. And people start forgetting they're not feeling something because they're seeing and hearing it. Oh, yes, yeah. I have, a, I have a story for you. And Richard knows this. Uh, Richard and I and some other friends uh, were sitting around, and Greg Hughes, we're sitting in a hotel somewhere in Europe at a tech ed or something. And the iPhone had just come out and I had just gotten one. And I, <laughs> you know, I'm i sitting over there top playing with my iPhone. It's going tick, 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 you know, when I press the buttons. And uh, Greg looks at me and he says, you know, there's a way to turn that sound off. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, especially when you're texting, it just goes off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this is a iPhone one Oh, you know, and I was into the click sound for some reason. <laughs> it's kind we'll of annoying. The skeuomorphic era of iPhone too. Uh, yeah. you know, yeah. They were very worried about the lack of haptic feedback of the, that you were trying to work from a, a touchable screen, which was an anomaly in 2007. So, you know, it's interesting how normal that metaphor is today, but, just a few years ago, it wasn't that common. And it is oh, interesting yeah. to think through the same exploration of interface metaphors we're trying to do in mixed reality. Oh, yeah. And then I guess that we do kind of have like certain ways of like producing that haptic feedback depending on the placement of virtual objects. So, mm-hmm. for example, we could have um, that something that emulates a virtual wearable. So, um, for example, like wrapping buttons around your wrist. And so placing mixed reality items in places that are familiar that we already know information will be. So a watch, we already know that we can can have information stored on that part of um, of the arm. So people will look at that area to see more information. And so 
when you have something that's like hand locked, palm locked, you can then push against your own hand or arm and you kind of have at least that kind of like minor haptic feedback. feedback. Exactly. Is it precise enough that you can actually, I mean, we keep these metaphors are so good in HoloLens that I can put an object down on a surface in reality and then walk around that it does not move. Like it never seems to breach the metaphor, but that's a stable object. I'm moving. It's not the idea that I could, put a, a, this digital object on my hand or on my wrist, and then I'm moving my head and moving my wrist, and it's not breaking the metaphor, like it follows precisely? Yeah, so that's all um, achieved through the uh, the different trackers on the HoloLens 2. So you mm-hmm. have the depth camera, as well as some other uh, spatial cameras, and I can show you like right here. So you have but mirror, this, this is, is a, audio only, right? So Oh right. yeah. Yeah. Of course. Well, that's all right. We'll try to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. So this is um yeah, the HoloLens 2 has um, multiple tracking cameras. Mm-hmm. So um one of those like primarily serves to look specifically for the hands and track the joints and the poses of um of each of those joints. Right. And then you have your other cameras that detect the environment around you and produce the uh, spatial mesh. And then like that spatial mesh is going to be the environment mapped um, that you currently have. And so then once you have that data, you're able to position objects in 3D space without placing things, for example, like in a wall or in an unreachable location um, if um, in your environment. So I have a question about... Um implementing this if i was a a vendor of a new augmented reality thing that came out right let's say you know joe's discount vr whatever and uh, i wanted to allow developers of the mrtk to use my stuff but i have a very limited set of features that i can use like uh, am I going to just like not implement the thing? Like, is everything that's possible in the MRTK for me? And then I only implement the things that my hardware can handle? Or is there like a system where, okay, uh, on the opposite side, there's something that my device does that the MRTK interfaces or whatever aren't aren't already anticipating? And so can I do extra stuff that's not in the MRTK and surface that to the developer? Oh, yes, you definitely can. So right now we have all of these features um, implemented in MRTK. And so um, by features, I mean, we have our spatial awareness system that um, exposes the uh, parameters for um, getting the data on the spatial mesh. And then, of course, that like feature is only supported um, on HoloLens 1 and HoloLens 2. So if we were with a VR headset, um, the spatial awareness system would not be compatible. Mm-hmm. We would then use the data produced from like that headset. And then that's where something called a uh, boundary visualization comes in. So, for example, with uh, an HTC Vive, you have those external trackers, and then those external trackers uh, give you a boundary where you can interact with a in, a in a certain space. So you have that boundary implementation. And then you're um, also like adding stuff. You have like a set limited um, set of uh, set of components you're able to remove providers and add providers or create your own provider depending okay, on well, your situation. That's yeah. very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I mean, it, it's tough to sort of anticipate what the next thing will be and um, giving, you know, giving a platform the ability to surface new things, you know, maybe, maybe that becomes part of the next version or whatever but uh, allowing them to surface new stuff it sounds very very compelling um is there a um is there support for the google cardboard thing that richard was talking about earlier so we actually do have um currently support ar core and ar kit and mrtk through uh, ar foundation and so the, the Google Cardboard thing um, he was talking about 
is kind of that like mock stereo rendering where you have right. both of those um, those two things there. So currently, I'm not sure. I know the mobile AR is just supported through um, a regular phone screen. You don't have that like stereoscopic kind of right. mock VR rendering. Yeah. But we do have support for the um, mobile AR. Yeah, so we could be making our own version of Pokemon Go for phone, which is, you know, yes. a, a sort of AR experience. Very popular one um, <laughs> with this toolkit. I mean, Unity, yeah. I mean, we've talked about Unity on the show a bunch of times. It's just this, it's a great way of making games with coding in C Sharp. And, and this is just adding VR, AR options. Also. Oh, yeah. No, I feel like the possibilities are endless within this like development realm. And it's like something that is largely unexplored, especially mm-hmm. like kind of the means of interactions, the types of input hmm. that we can employ in these um, through different like AR and VR headsets. And then also the challenge of abstracting all of these different hard, like all of this different hardware. Right. And there is, yeah, there is so much to it and it's a very exciting space. But, and I appreciate doing the hardware abstraction because no one set of hardware is at that dominance threshold, that tipping threshold where it's like, this is how this technology is going to take off. I mean, I think Oculus has built some great gear and there's nothing wrong with the vibe, right? With HTC stuff either. It's beautiful with Valve stuff. And the HoloLens is astonishing, but none of them is none of them is an iPhone yet. Although you think about it, iPhones came late to the smartphone game too. They may have revolutionized it and sort of standardized it, but we've been experimenting with smartphones for many years. It's, it feels to me like we're in that that pre stage right now, and I appreciate mm. that it's we're creating abstractions so that you can code across all of them. Oh, definitely. And the work that um, we have also been doing with MRTK, there is a a new framework called OpenXR. And that is the goal of that framework is to have a universal um, pipeline for XR. And so um, I don't know too much about it, but I do know that we have like the regular controller definitions. And of course, those controllers can either be just a traditional VR controller or articulated hands or another input method. So it's like all the same at the core. It's just a matter of customizing it depending on uh, which headset you're using. Right. And it just just becomes a mapping problem. Mm -hmm. Exactly. A lot more service. And uh, folks, I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. Are you under increasing pressure to ship code faster than ever before? Then it's time to work smarter with Raygun's modern approach to error and performance monitoring. Raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software. And what makes it so unique is that it not only tells you when something's gone wrong, it shows you exactly where it's gone wrong and how to fix it, right down to the line of code. Made by developers for developers, Raygun has built a suite of monitoring tools that are used and loved by thousands of software teams every day. Monitor every corner of your tech stack with widespread language support and native integrations with GitHub, Jira, Slack, Bitbucket, Octopus Deploy, and more for even greater visibility. Visit raygun.com to resolve issues faster and to deliver flawless digital experiences for your users. That's raygun.com to get started on your free 14-day trial with plans starting from as little as $4 per month. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. Yo. And we're talking to Catherine Diaz about the Mixed Reality Toolkit. I, I don't know if we can go too deep into this, but, you know, in the end, I'm, a, I'm an enterprise guy. And I, I mean, I love a good game. I play it on trivial number of Unity games, and I've played a few games on various headsets. But I still wonder if there isn't a productivity product out there somewhere that's served by AR. Yes. So we do actually have um, that right now. So there is an application uh, called uh, Remote Assist or Guides. And the current use case is um, being heavily utilized in the manufacturing industry. Hmm. So manufacturing, which is guiding people through large warehouses, creating instructions step by step, Mm -hmm. overlaying different um, 
different holograms on top of different parts of machinery to okay. indicate a procedure. And For like so, a repair or a maintenance process? Yeah, anything. Yeah, mm-hmm. so like a repair or a maintenance process. And then you're able to kind of have and store these different experiences or a sets of steps within guides or remote assist while also having somebody right there looking at your direct camera feed to then direct you. That's cool. Well, to me, I'm thinking about regulated industry stuff like airlines and airline engines, not only having detailed separate procedures for maintenance on the engine, but to have a detailed video record of that maintenance being done. Mm -hmm. You get those two things at the same time. And you know what this reminds me of? This sort of state of technology is, it reminds me of the BlackBerry, right? Back in the day, in the early days of BlackBerry, nobody had one, right? It was only big enterprises that could have them. It's like an organization like a Pratt & Whitney or a Boeing or something to have these expensive devices doing something extremely important, you know, something that where the, the AR capabilities significantly augment safety, for example, and uh, and, and being compliant with regulations. Like they, you have these detailed records of what has happened, that maintenance has gone on, that procedures have been followed. Like that's, that's powerful stuff because these are still not really consumer devices as near as I can tell, at least in the AAR side. Yes. So right now the HoloLens 2 is primarily for enterprise, but we have opened uh, up and it is for sale for, for anybody. Mm-hmm. But the HoloLens 2, yes, is primarily for um, enterprise applications. I, I mean, yeah, I'm waiting. I would love to see that that product that when you put it on, it's like this is your your productivity product in the sense of the same moment that when Carl had his iPhone, it's like people are like, well, is it? It's so expensive. Is it worth it? You hand it to them and you can't get it back. Yep. Like it's just that compelling, and I don't I don't know that we're there yet. We seem to be inching towards it. But, and I wonder about, you know, developing a unity for just building that kind of, of style of application. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because I think uh, well, right now, like unity is like that entry point for even like VR developers, AR developers, mm-hmm. anybody. And like we're, of course, like working to improve the toolkit to make sure that we support all like as many headsets as we can. And it is all open source to make sure we support the community and share the knowledge. Have you seen, I don't know if you have been paying attention to this, but have you seen um, demand for uh, VR and AR go up because of the COVID pandemic and the fact that people can't, couldn't be together? Uh, and so, you know, the sort of remote assist that you were talking about is a perfect example of that. Um, but remote anything, I mean, the, talk about industry, what happens when the, the plane mechanic can't actually make it to the airport hangar to you know to fix a plane or something like that have you seen any kind of demand increase in the last couple years oh yeah so i think a good example of this is going to be alt space vr so um alt space vr is is a community that puts on vr events so you can put on your headset and join these different events there was a concert the other day there's different like social meetups and that's like wow. a, an area that we have definitely see um, like increased activity during mm. the pandemic. And that is that has been very cool to see because I was able to do a uh, develop a mixed reality developer days presentation. And that presentation was done in VR. And I was looking yeah. at an audience of uh, avatars while I was uh, presenting the, uh, the toolkit. How cool is that? So after a year and a half of shouting into the void into a camera, because we're not getting together, you're doing the VR experience and you're at least seeing an audience, but it's an audience of, of VR avatars. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. And are, and are they reacting to you? Like, can you see when you say something funny, they move? Like, what was that like? Yes. So, yeah. So it they do have a reaction. So, of course, like you can have the emojis that like you can choose and then they like pop up over the avatars. Right. <laughs> but if if the people have um, hand tra- or controllers, so if you mm-hmm. have VR controllers in your uh, headset, you're able to see the movement of their hands and their avatar, and so you can kind of see them clapping with the controllers. <laughs> They're bringing the controllers <laughs> together. Oh, that's odd. Don't break yes. your controllers. No, don't break them. But. <laughs> 
Yeah. So there is like that form of kind of um, at least some level of interaction. And then with those applications, the strength is going to be that spatial sound. So you're able to go off into another area with somebody and talk to them directly while other people in that area do not hear you because the sound is going to be relative to the distance and what you're going to hear. You've made development of 3D applications so easy that I think now the challenge is how to build 3D models and, and, uh, you know, and, and build, um, uh, holograms, right. For lack of a better word, well, holograms on the HoloLens, but you know, 3D objects that you can interact with on any platform. Uh, I, I remember the HoloLens had a hologram builder. It was kind of rough, but it was cool. Is there anything so nice for the rest of the world to, of, you know, developers to be able to use today? So, so eventually we would love to have kind of a, a holographic kind of mesh builder. But the closest example I can think of within that area is uh, there is a HoloLens 2 app called Graffiti. And so that's going to be kind of a painting application. And of course, like the painting within a space is a mesh. So then you're able to paint in your environment on the walls within space, adjust all of these like paint like strokes, create shapes and uh, do a lot of very cool things. And so that is a graffiti. And that I think is net. Yeah. Graffiti for HoloLens too. And that utilizes like the near interaction hand tracking. So the gesture there to uh, paint is going to be that air tap and hold. And then it tracks like the location of your hands within that space. But no, you do make a good point about kind of the um, how easy it is to build 3D models within the AR environment. Because currently you have like software like Maya and uh, other like 3D model, uh, 3D modeling software that you then import into Unity. Right. But it could be like we could make it a lot easier. And I feel like that's a very interesting area to explore. Because there is a lot of 3D assets out there these days, but I don't know how well mapped they are to the sort of VR, AR space, too. Oh, yeah. Well, you can drop any 3D asset into a, a Unity scene because like OBJ, FBX, any format with that Unity supports. So you can kind of like get like your 3D assets online and then drop them into your Unity project and then build to device. Right. Nice. Wow. Um, yeah. Is there anything in there that, um, I mean, we you've talked about some of the basic stuff that's in the toolkit. What are some of the coolest features that you know that you we haven't talked about? Oh, okay. I would say some of the, the coolest features are going to be our UX building blocks. And so these UX building blocks are going to be tailored to spatial interactions. So one of them is called bounds control. And bounce control is just a unity component that you attach to your game object. And it's going to allow the user to scale, rotate, and interact with an object within a space without having to worry about any of the, um, the logic behind it. You have those near interaction scale handles that are supported both through that direct touch as well as like that far interaction input. And so also like when I say far interaction input with the HoloLens 2, we have that uh, controller ray on our controllers. The only difference is that we have that ray cast and the origin is going to be the palm joint. So you have that palm joint and then you have that ray cast from that joint to enable far interaction. And so then that's the, the kind of the similar input to the HoloLens 1. So you have the air tap gesture in order to register the selection. So that's what bounds control is. And then we also have object manipulator, which is similar to um, bounds control, only a lot more uh, freeform, where you can directly near interaction, grab an object, place it in other places, but it also supports two-handed interaction. So you can reach for an object with both hands and you pinch to select, and then you expand the um, the distance between both of your hands and that object is going to scale, rotate, and move 
with your hands. And wow. so there's like the movement components as well as our other input components, uh, such as interactable or interactive element. And those are going to expose the uh, unique input system events and filter out the different types of interactions produced by um, MRTK pointers, which are going to be those uh, means of interaction. So you, for example, you have the poke pointer, which is going to be that near interaction pointer attached to the index finger joint. And then that another pointer would be that far interaction uh, ray. That's pretty cool. This is really interesting. Just the yeah. possibilities. Of, I mean, it's easy to get swept up in the game side of this stuff. Um, but it, I mean, there's so many more possibilities. I guess we, it's science fiction that's distorting our brains here, right? Too much Tony Stark. Oh yeah, but then there's so yeah, there's so many possibilities. I think yeah. like especially with um, exploring input that is not just like through a mouse or through a touchscreen. Like what happens when input is um, kind of expanded to like the third dimension, and how mm-hmm. do we optimize user interfaces? within this space because right now we're just used to looking at screens in a static location sure. right, and right. that input is either just through mouse or through a touchscreen. But what happens when we have elements that are body locked, like tailored to the wrist, hand joints, all of these different items, and then and eventually combining inputs. So like, like you've mentioned before, the eye tracking, uh-huh. So that eye tracking is currently used in MRTK to uh, kind of increase the uh, user confidence of a, or to avoid false activation of right. certain elements. So as an example, we have a hand menu. And so this hand menu is, um, is enabled when the palm joint is facing the camera. And so when the palm joint is facing the camera, you then have a menu that appears right next to your hand. (laughs) And so what happens there is that we use eye tracking to make sure that there is no false activation of this, of of this hand menu. So it's not just the palm is showing, it's that you're looking at the palm. Yes. It's that Ah. the eyes are looking directly at the palm. So if somebody's just moving around doing their thing and they accidentally, um, they, and so this prevents them accidentally enabling the hand menu because it'll, the eye tracking can detect intention. Like this user is definitely looking at the hand and they want to see the hand menu. I want eye tracking in windows because, uh, and, um, we've used one tool, uh, one, hard piece of hardware before and it didn't work very well in my light but because you know i've got a wide screen like it's 50 inches wide you know and so i've got multiple windows up and it's just so natural for me to just look at the screen i want and start typing but of course it's focus is never there it's never there yeah (laughs) i just want to look at the window and blink and then uh, the windows should be selected yeah I just want it. I mean, my I expect it. That's the thing my brain expects that I can just look at something and start typing. Oh yeah, we can add dwell on the Windows yeah. monitors. <laughs> but you're, you're bringing up the point that we now have monitors big enough that you have multiple windows side yeah. by side. Oh yeah, which is great for productivity. But you've got this. But we still have this binary focus metaphor. The number of times I've typed into the wrong window, right? Looking at something else. Yeah, and typed over something that was selected, for example. Ugh, I hate that. Therein lies the hardest problem, which is you, it's hard to type with any kind of headset on. Yeah. VR mm-hmm. or AR. Like, oh, you'll like this story. I actually wanted to um, it, go out in the on the on the back deck and write code, but of course it's sunny and uh, you know there's a glare and it's and it kind of stinks. So I got the great idea that I want to get some sort of headset that understands hands and fingers and stuff and uh, just set up in an, a virtual environment where I had a keyboard and I could just start ty- and, uh, typing and then capture my screen. Um, and, and I never got it to work, but, but that would be so cool because, you know, now you could be in an environment where that isn't conducive to writing code and, uh, you know, or working on a computer for anything. And then just, you know, put yeah, yourself in a big movie theater or something. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. You can put your headset on and then go anywhere you want. Right. You don't have to be tethered to your desk. Exactly. I like that idea. Mm-hmm. You know, I did this with the early HoloLens, right? Where you'd open windows and you'd stick them to walls. Right. And it's like, I, everything is a monitor now. Right. <laughs> have no you just have to wear your HoloLens all day. Oh, uh, yeah. And the battery doesn't last and it's heavy and it's hot. Right. But, uh, but it, is, it is interesting to get to a place where it's like, could I eliminate the screens? Still have the physical keyboard because I type passes with the haptic feedback. But have the screens just be digital. Oh, yeah. Do you remember that video, Richard, that we saw early on in this whole thing where some guy had was in a virtual world and typing uh, into a, a command line and using the command line to build up his environment? And he was actually writing live code yeah. and building his environment at the same time. And I think that was VR, actually. That he was it was in, VR, right? yeah. But the idea that you could, he was, he was gesturing or using our controller to select an object in the 3D space. And then it would pop open a dialogue or a window that write code to modify it. And he'd write the code and immediately see the changes. Yeah. And he was actually writing the code to build the environment live. (laughs) It was crazy. Oh, wow. What what demo is this one? Uh, We got to find it. We'll find it somewhere. It's, It's in the archives. We'll find it. Oh yeah, that sounds awesome. But that, I mean, therein lies the challenge, Catherine. Is it's you know you, writing. I got to think that writing code for VR and AR is very much like the mobile development experience, where the machine you're coding on is not the machine you're running the code on. So you have this long cycle. Part. Oh yeah. So like you currently have like the pipeline of developing on your desktop, and then building your application, and then deploying to the device. And so there currently, it doesn't, ex- uh, or at least I don't think there currently exists an application where you have the headset on and then you're actually developing within in the, that, in the, headset in, the, in the headset space. But I do see that, like, uh, I do see that in the future. That seems like a huge problem. Like, kind of, it, you've obviously worked with the toolkit a fair bit. So you have the experience of writing code on your machine and then pushing in some way to a HoloLens and having to take it off and on or flip it up and down. Like, how do you do it? Oh, yeah. So in MRTK, we have something called the input simulation. So the input simulation is something that you can test in editor, um, in the Unity editor. So this there isn't like this constant me putting on the headset, me taking it off and testing my changes. Right. I am able to test changes uh, in the editor. So within Unity, you hit play. And then within the uh, game view window, you can bring up articulated hands by pressing... Uh, um, buttons on the keyboard. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you hold the space bar, the right hand comes up within that scene. Right. And then you are able to navigate that scene and test those interactions within the editor. But then there is also another avenue called uh, holographic remoting. Right. And so, holographic remoting is when you are within that Unity editor and you are going to connect to your HoloLens. And so, when you hit play in the Unity editor, you will be able to see it in your headset. So you're not constantly building applications and uh, testing them after like deploying the, the Visual Studio solution. Right. I found the video. Rift Sketch? Yeah, Rift Sketch. I pasted it in Zencaster and we'll watch that quickly. Um, and we can add it to the list uh, of links. It's fascinating. But you know, you, you know, Catherine, you're describing the typical mobile scenario, which is rather than running on the device, I run on an emulator, and hopefully, it's the same. You know. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I got to think you run into the same issue with deploying to this diversity of VR and AR headsets. It's like it works great on this device, then I run it on that device, and I have a couple of problems. Oh yeah. Well, I think like that's kind of the the goal of MRTK is to kind of uh, standardize that mm-hmm. um, interaction across devices, and so uh, I wouldn't see that there would be a difference between those uh, VR headsets. But of course, there are different considerations when right. developing for AR, and that's when like the comfort of like the placement of certain items relative to you come in. Right. So placing holograms at a certain distance that are within that field of view for the device, but then also something that doesn't overwhelm the user 
and take up too much of that screen space because we do still have to see the world around us. And so the that's where like VR is completely different because you're able to fill that space. It is all virtual. But then with AR, you kind of need to strategically place things um, relative to that uh, environment that you're in mm-hmm. so that there's a more of a seamless blend between virtual and real world instead of just a purely virtual environment. Right. Yeah. And the efficiency in the coding on this is going to be the challenge to get better and better at, at that. I, I, you know, we're struggling for the right metaphors for interaction in general in AR, VR. I wonder if developing good metaphors for development would help that overall, but I don't think that's resolved yet. It still feels very much like the mobile development experience. Yes, I think that's that's a, that's a fair statement. Mm-hmm. But of course, the uh, the field is um, going to evolve, and it's very um, it's very exciting to be a part of it. Oh yeah, and be a part of that of that evolution. Um, besides the Hololens, too, what is your favorite virtual reality device? Oh, right now I was able to uh, to try the uh, HP Reverb uh, G two. That is a a newer headset. And that one has probably been the best VR experience I have had so far. And that one I tried very briefly, but I feel like I also have like the, the Oculus uh, DK2 also has a special place in my Mm -hmm. heart because that was the first uh, headset I developed for back in uh, 2016 while working in a research lab. Okay. But I mean, I got to think each new headset is improving. You know, why would you build a new headset if you're not improving on the old one? Oh, yeah. And I think like probably the Oculus, um, the Oculus Quest, the addition of like that hand tracking yeah. is a, is very cool. So that, that eliminates the need for the controllers. And that is something like MRTK supports too. Isn't the Oculus Quest also self-contained? Yes. So it does have that inside out tracking. Well, I mean, self-contained is you, you're no longer tethered to a PC. Yes. I think, that, yeah, you, that one doesn't have, you're not tethered to a PC. I don't think so. Yeah. And that's sort of, you know, that was, HoloLens came out with that from the very beginning. And everybody was like, you know, I don't know if this is necessary. And now it's becoming more and more apparent that it is. And as long as there's a wire attached to you, you're, you're limited in what you can do. Oh, yeah. No, that freedom of movement is crucial to like user user comfort and then even just the usability of the device. Yeah, it just strikes me that every time you feel that tug of that wire, it yanks you out of the metaphor, right? Mm-hmm. It just completely removes like removes yeah. you from that experience. I agree. Yeah, it's, it's interesting reminders of, you know, what you're seeing isn't real. <laughs> yeah, it, like it breaks like that, like that illusion, yeah. and then we want to keep that illusion that things are seamlessly blended. Yeah. I, and it, you know, you were talking about replacing haptic with sound. It's like sound is three dimensional on a, on, on a hallways, right? And the, you you realize it's not just that you heard a click when you push that button, that button moved to your finger. It's that it was in the right spot. Your brain triangulated that it was that button that clicked. Yes. Yeah. So that is called a uh, spatial sound. Yeah. And so that is a, a large part of the, of maintaining immersion within yeah. the headset. And so even like with um, that button click, there is a gradual sound. It's not just a simple um, button click sound. There was a lot of research that went into um, from like our wonderful design team about how exactly that interaction works um, as you are touching that button. Like what sounds do you hear? What visual feedback are you getting in order to uh, increase the user action input confidence that like the button did indeed press. And like this action was registered because you have to pay a very close attention to those details when there is that lack of haptic feedback and you're just Mm -hmm. pressing the air. Yeah. And, and those are the things that will make the difference. But it, oh, it yeah. also occurs to me for a lot of programmers, at least at the Unity level, you don't have to solve that problem. You should be able to have a component that's a button that has the motion and the sound, all of that solved for you. 
Oh, yeah. We have uh, the MRTK components have all of the user research already embedded in there. Right. And all our users have to do is drop the pressable button HoloLens 2 prefab into their scene. And they already have a button specifically wired for um, a wide range of different interactions within yeah. their scene. Now I want to create a panel with like eight buttons across it and say, can I tell which button is which? Like this is spatial recognition is precise enough to be able to click on the right one. Oh yeah. Well, the, all of the input action is based on like that poke pointer that I mentioned, mm -hmm. which is a sphere cast tethered to the index finger uh, tip joint. So it's going to be, it will be precise because yeah. it's going to be tracking that index finger joint and then looking for a collision between the index finger joint and the collider on that button. Yeah. That's yeah. That's what it's the resolution take. The funny thing is, we're still simulating the old flat UI metaphors. Yes. I wonder what the rethink is. If you didn't have the baggage of decades of of screen based GUIs, and you were get a chance to, to rethink UIs entirely in this three dimensional space, what would they look like? Oh yeah, and that leads in. Very nicely, because that's exactly what I'm currently working on in cool. the uh, in the mixed reality toolkit. Wow. Is um, it's it's specifically called? Um, I'm looking at spatially organizing objects in 3D, and kind of pushing the boundaries of laying out items, not within like a two dimension, just like along the x and y axis, because that's this is what we know. Mm -hmm. But like, as I mentioned, like different unique UIs that are like buttons around the wrist, maybe um, buttons in the shape of a mesh, curved displays, and then as well as supporting those transition between elements. So if you have like a grid layout and you want to transition to like more of an ellipse layout, right? those buttons can then transform from being on, in a grid in front of you to then being walked around your wrist or laid out around your arm. And so that's where these unique layout components tailored specifically to uh, MR are going to come in. And that's kind of, and this work is all like public, like these uh, components are going to be in a future version of Mixed Reality Toolkit. Right, so it's just GitHub, right? So anybody yeah, can have GitHub. access to them. Mm -hmm. are we yeah. gonna get, I just wonder if we're going to get to a place where the vendors of this hardware start to make sure their stuff works with Toolkit because it's going to open up more users of the device. Oh, yeah. And so like then like the strength of the toolkit, too, is that you build one application and you are able to deploy to any headset. Get to, get to so, all of them, yeah. Oh, yeah. So then even like with mobile AR, so you have a single application that you've built with MRTK, deploy that to a HoloLens 2, a VR headset, and using um, AR Foundation, you can also deploy that to uh, like a phone, Android iPhone. And so there's this, the, I don't know, there's, there's so much there and it's all so much fun to work on. Yeah. All right. Very so I, I found another cool thing, um, tracking a keyboard in VR using the Oculus Quest 2. So there's a, a keyboard that you can get a Logitech K830 that pairs to the Oculus. And when you pair it up and you move your hands over the keyboard, you actually see your hands. That's insane. Oh, oh that's yeah. so then that. Go that's forward to about uh, four four thirty, something like that. Four thirty. Oh, four so then you're able to kind of gauge where your um, hand is, so you have that visual feedback, yep. knowing exactly where your hands are tracked. All right, I'm getting this, so I can write code on my back deck. <laughs> still this time. solves your problem, right? That's this solves my problem. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so you still get that haptic feedback, but then yeah. you're able to uh, see it's that a real keyboard. keyboard. Oh, very <laughs> cool. Yeah. And I can write some code with it now that I've got the, uh, the MRTK. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Well, this has been so much fun, but I'm afraid that uh, I'm, I've got another request to the one who must be obeyed uh, for a toy that's probably going to get shot down, <laughs> but we'll see. But, it, you know, I, I know we're having fun with the show when we immediately go off into various projects. We oh, yeah. Do that, right. It's like, like yeah. when you know how good a topic is. It's like, oh, no, I'm already working on the next thing I want to do with this. 
I have an older Oculus, and uh, it's it's fun. I like fishing, but you know you can't see your hands. So I'm I'm definitely going to get this. This is good. Catherine, yeah, this has been great. Catherine, thank you so much. This has been an eye opener. Uh, and what can I tell you? I hope everybody uh, goes out and gets the MRTK. Starts writing code. Oh yeah, it's on GitHub, and then there's also you can get it through the uh, mixed reality feature tool. And we also love our community, and so we are completely open to contributions. And I hope you guys like it. Thanks again, Catherine. And thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a bands by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a